Uh, guys, now that I'm in my 40s, here's what I'm realizing. Uh, making healthy decisions is more important now than it's ever been. And so the kind of diet that I consume, the amount of sleep that I get, the amount of exercise I get. And so I want you to know that, that when it comes to making healthy decisions, I have the best of intentions. I really do. I mean, there's no shortage of enthusiasm in me to say, for example, go to the gym every single day. Now, I would love to tell you that I do go to the gym every single day. However, I must confess that there are times, just times, sometimes, where my enthusiasm does not follow through and I actually skip going to the gym. And sometimes my best of intentions turns into excuses. Todd, this never happens to you, I know. Uh, and I, sometimes I skip the gym. Now, again, this is all hypothetical for you. I know this. Nothing ever gets between you and your intentions. And so you don't know what I'm talking about. But if I could, let me tell you why this happens sometimes. Whenever I go to the gym, I have to experience, to some degree, a level of pain. And it starts with getting out of my comfortable, cozy, warm bed and stepping into negative three degree weather. You know what that is? That's called pain. Nobody should ever have to experience this, right? And so you should just stay in bed. And then if you do go to the gym, you have to strain. Do you know what straining means? It means that there's pain. And that sometimes means you sweat. Sometimes it means you get out of breath. That's a terrible experience. So you shouldn't have to do this. And then sometimes, occasionally, you pull a muscle. And so there's some pain related to exercising, but there's something else too. There's a little bit of shame involved in it as well because when I go to the gym sometimes, I see guys who are in far better shape than me and then I feel bad. I have some shame. I ate some ice cream the night before and I don't have 4% body fat. So there's some pain associated with this, some shame associated with making healthy decisions. And so, I don't know, sometimes it just encourages me, compels me to, well, skip the healthy decision. Now, I have a question to ask you is it okay with you if I use those excuses to not make healthy decisions? Of course you're saying no, because you know something that I'm not thinking of right now, and that is that if I'm unwilling to push through that pain, push through that shame, then I'll never get to the healthy lifestyle on the other side. So the encouragement that you would give me is push through the pain, push through the shame, because on the other side is what I'm really looking for, because you know something that I'm beginning to learn, and that is this. You can have the best of intentions. You can have all the greatest enthusiasm, but it means nothing if it doesn't translate into follow-through, right? Now, I appreciate that advice, and so I'll take it. I'm wondering if you'll let me give you the same advice this morning for your marriage. We're in a series called In the Ring. It's a marriage series. And what I want to let you know is whenever I preach, I try to craft a message that by the end of it, you feel as little unnecessary pain and shame as possible. It would break my heart if you said, you know what, that was painful today. And why is it that I always feel ashamed leaving Brookside? That would break my heart. That's not my intention, nor do I believe that's the gospel. Now, let me say unnecessary pain unnecessary shame. So that's never my intention. Now, the reason I say that is because I don't know if I can avoid that altogether today. Because I'm preaching off of one verse today that the moment I read it, it will resurrect whatever pain and shame has been a part of your marriage. Now, before you bail, before you ignore, before you say, I'm not listening to this, 
because I don't want to deal with that pain or that shame. Let me encourage you with the same advice you gave me just a little bit ago. If you're unwilling to push through that pain or shame, you'll never get to the healthy marriage on the other side. But if you're willing to, if you're willing to deal with the sweat, if you're willing to deal with the strain, sometimes the pulled muscles, if you're willing to deal with the fact that, yeah, I ate ice cream last night, probably shouldn't have, but I'm going to still go to the gym, then you'll get to that healthy life on the other side. So please don't bail. Don't check out. Don't get up and say, forget it. I'm not dealing with this. Push through that pain and shame so that together we can get to that healthy marriage on the other side because we're in this series called In the Ring. The whole idea is that once you get married, you step into the ring. The problem is once you and your spouse step into the ring, we more often not fight against each other and end up destroying each other. But what the gospel is asking us to do is to get into the ring and fight with each other for the marriage and against all other voices and enemies that are seeking to destroy the marriage. So the question I left you with you last week is not, are you a fighter? The question I left you with is, who are you fighting? Your spouse or all of the other influences that are trying to destroy your marriage. Now, I want to take that a step further today and introduce you to a verse that will inevitably bring up pain and shame. But on the other side of it, you will be encouraged. You will be. This verse has three parts to it. The first part is a perspective the author wants you to embrace. The second part is a decision the author wants you to make. And the third part is a warning the author wants you to receive. Here it is, Hebrews chapter 13, verse four. Here's what the author says. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. Your version might say the marriage bed left undefiled. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. It says marriage should be honored by all. There's the perspective the author wants you to embrace. And the marriage bed kept pure. That's the decision the author wants you to make. And then for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. That's the warning he wants you to receive. It begins by asking everyone to honor marriage. The word for honor is tamio. And it means to honor something. But more often than not, the word is used, translated as Precious something of great price. It's so expensive, you can't afford it. In the other words, this word is an important word to understand the perspective God has on marriage because here's what's interesting. This word that translates as precious is used not only to describe the value of marriage, but watch this, in 1 Peter, it's used to describe the value of the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Peter says. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but listen to it, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The blood of Christ is precious, but it goes on in 2 Peter to use the same word to describe the promises of God, how valuable they are. Listen to it. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Do you want to experience the nature of God? You can't do that unless through the promises of God, which makes them precious, but it's not done. In Revelation, this very word translated as precious is used to describe the glory of God itself. Listen for it. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God 
It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance, listen to it, was like that of a very precious jewel. Revelation 21, 11. So the glory of God is precious. The promises of God are precious. The blood of Jesus is precious. No doubt about that, right? You really can't be a believer unless you agree with that. But then the author of Hebrews, he uses this word very strategically. It's not by accident that he uses the same word to describe marriage. So yes, the blood of Jesus is precious. The glory of God and the promises of God are precious. And your marriage is precious. Here's my question. Is your perspective on your marriage is that it is that precious? Do you know what you do when you discover something precious? Let me tell you, let me tell you. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a story of a guy who finally for Christmas received the best gift he's been waiting for, a metal detector. And I'm not talking about one of these cheap things either. I'm talking about an expensive one that can really find some good stuff under the ground. And so one day, this man with his brand new shiny metal detector calls up a friend who owns a field. Says, hey dude, I got my favorite new toy. Can I come to your field and look around for stuff? And the guy says, sure you can, thinking the only thing this guy's gonna find in his field is a rusty old nail. And so that Saturday morning, in his excitement, the man wakes up, he grabs his new shiny metal detector and drives to this field and he starts to swing this thing around. Beeps, beeps, beeps. Eventually, it dings, which is different than a beep, it dings indicating there's something underneath the ground. And so he grabs his shovel in excitement, digs it up, and a few moments later, he discovers, there it is, that rusty old nail. Well, the farmer was right. It's just a rusty old nail. But he's undeterred. He keeps going. A few minutes later, it dings again. This time, as he digs in the ground, he finds something else. It's not a, it's not a rusty nail. Now it's a button. And it looks old from like maybe the 1920s. He's like, this is exciting. I found a treasure. It's a button. He's like, I'm going to keep going. And so moves that thing back and forth and it keeps beeping and beeping. And then a while later it dings again. He's like, ooh, something else. And so he grabs his shovel, digs again. And wow, this is a coin. And it looks old, man. Maybe a couple hundred years old. I bet this thing's worth a few hundred bucks. Maybe, maybe just a couple of dollars. But it was fun. I found a coin. By this time, the sun's about ready to go down and he's like, maybe I should call it a day until he decides, you know what? I'm having a good time. There's still some daylight. Let's keep going. And so he swings it back and forth. And when it dings the next time, it's not the kind of ding for a rusty nail or a button or a coin. No, no. It's a loud ding, a deep ding. He says, there must be something big under here. And so he gets his shovel and starts to dig and before long, he hits something hard. It's a piece of wood, but it's not like a root or anything like that. No, no, it's flat. It looks more like a plank. And as he digs more, he realizes that plank is connected to another plank, to another plank. And as he digs even more, he realizes he's looking at the top of a huge chest. He's like, a chest? A buried chest? What's inside? He tries to wiggle it loose to pull it up, but it doesn't even budge. It's huge. And so he digs around the sides, and now that the entire chest is revealed, he tries to lift it up. But no, way too heavy. Whatever is inside this chest is massive. What he does do is he finds the latch. 
he unlocks the latch, he lifts up the lid and what stares back at him, listen to it, is a treasure beyond his imagination. I'm talking about gold ingots, gold coins, gold bars, silver, diamonds, gems, or, or, or treasures from antiquity. This stuff is old. I'm talking about like Roman times. And what he sees, he realizes, is a treasure worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. And he's so excited. He's rich until he realizes, wait a minute, I'm not rich. This isn't my field. And if he comes out with this, the owner of the field's going to say, that's mine. And so here's what he says he needs to do. He looks around to make sure nobody sees what he's dug up and he quickly reburies it. And he says, I need to buy this field so that I can own not just the field, but everything, including the rusty nail and the button and the coin and the chest of treasure underneath it. And so he goes to the bank. He says, how much do I have in my bank account? $10,000, that ought to do it. So he grabs all of it, empties the bank account, goes to the man and says, I want to buy your field. Will this do it? The man says, what? $10,000, not a chance, man. Not even close. And so the man goes back. He says, what else do I have? I've got a retirement plan, a 401k. I'll cash it out. That's $100,000, man. And so he goes back to the farmer and says, I got $110,000 now. Will this do it? And the farmer says, you're getting close. But no, 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 no. This field is worth more than that. And so the man goes back and says, what else do I have? Ah, I've got some cars. I've got some couches. I've got some chairs. I've got some TVs. In fact, I've got a house. He says, I'll sell it all. And he does, liquidates everything that he has. And now all that he owns is the clothes on his body and this check worth now, let's say, a half a million dollars. And so it goes back to the farmer and says, will this do it? Now the farmer realizes his field's not worth that much, but he's going to take it anyway. So he says, sure is, man. He takes the check, signs the deed of the field over, thinking that he just took the man but the man knows something the farmer doesn't, doesn't he? There's a rusty nail in that field. There's a button in that field. So there's a coin in that field, but there's also a chest of gold worth multiple millions of dollars, a hoard. And so now that he owns the field, listen to what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Do you know what you and I do when we discover something so precious? We are willing to give up everything to hold it in our hands. So again, my question is this. What is your perspective, perception, point of view on your marriage? You know what the problem is? Sometimes we don't see the value of our marriage and instead we see the value of something else and switch the values. So because of this, some of us have given up the value of our marriage for the value of sex. Some of us have given up our marriage for money. Some of us have given up our marriage for a career, 
for ambition, for pride. I'm never wrong. She thinks, she thinks I am all the time. I'm never wrong. Some of us have given up our marriage because it's hard work and we want an easier life. Some of us have given up our marriage for the opportunity for an illicit thrill of a relationship with somebody half our age. Listen to what Jesus says. When you find something of that value, you go and you hide it again so nobody can grab it out, of under, out from under you. And then you sell everything you have. Your 401k, your bank account, your cars, your TV, your house. Now you have nothing so that you can get the one thing that's more valuable than everything else. Again, what's your perception on your marriage? That's the perception the author wants you to get. Now, here's the thing. If you can perceive your marriage or future marriage like that. Now you can move on to the second part of the verse. Here's what it says. Keep the marriage bed pure, undefiled. Let me pause and just recognize that by now, if there's ever been any pain or shame associated with your marriage, it has already been brought to the surface. I know this. Again, please don't check out. Don't bail. Push through it so we can get to the healthy marriage on the other side. He says, keep the marriage bed undefiled. It's a word that's used a lot in the New Testament. But here's what's interesting. It's used to describe the kind of high priest Jesus is in Hebrews chapter seven. Here's what it says. Jesus is our undefiled, set apart, uncontaminated high priest. And how, how, how great is that for us? Because so many of us have known priests and pastors who have all kinds of influence, authority, platforms, and it has come out that their leadership, their sexuality, their decisions have become defiled, corrupted, broken. And we have all seen the negative consequences of a defiled spiritual leader in our lives. And in James chapter one, it talks about religion that is undefiled. It says, here's pure religion to look after the widows and the orphans. And that's really important for us, isn't it? Because we've all seen what defiled religion does to people. When religion becomes legalistic for the sake of controlling or manipulating or gaining wealth at your expense, that's defiled religion. So what I mean by this is when we experience something in our life that is influential, that has status, that has authority, but it remains undefiled, that's like a breath of fresh air, isn't it? Because we're surrounded by things that have become defiled and we've seen the negative consequences of it. And so the author of Hebrews in 13.4 says, leave the marriage bed undefiled. Because we've all seen what a defiled marriage bed looks like. What's the author talking about? He's talking about intimacy between a husband and a wife. When... when King Solomon writes a letter to his son. You can read it. It's a book called Proverbs. And the reason that King Solomon writes this letter to his son is because he knows just how dangerous defiled intimacy looks like, can be. And he knows how easy it is to step into defiled intimacy. And so I want to read to you, if I could, what this author says to his son. Listen to what he says. 
Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. Wisdom will save you, verse 16 and 17 says of chapter two, wisdom will save you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Now, let me pause and say, ladies, if you feel like Scripture is singling, out, singling you out, let me stop and say it's not doing that. Remember, this is a father writing a letter to a son. But listen, fathers, if you have a daughter, here's how you should read this to her. Wisdom will save you from the adulterous man, from the wayward man with his seductive words who has left the partner of his youth and ignored the covenant he made before God. For the lips of the adulterous man drip honey and his speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, he is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Let me pause and say, I learned a lesson a long time ago. I don't know if you agree with this. Here's what I, here's what I believe. A broken woman, watch this, a broken woman will give up the sex to get to the I love you. The broken man will give up the I love you to get to the sex. And in both cases, lips drip honey and seductive words come in and cause you to do things you would never do in your right mind. And so Solomon writes this encouragement to his son. He goes on to say this. So keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your, and your toil enrich the house of another. Why my son be intoxicated? That's a powerful word, isn't it? Why my son be intoxicated with another man's wife? Now, can I tell you what I did not hear Solomon tell his son? I didn't, hear his, I didn't hear him tell his son, you know what? You're bigger than this. You're stronger than this. I dare you walk up to her house and say, do your worst. I dare you to tempt me. I can handle it. I don't hear Solomon say to his son, you know what? Just, just be a man and deal with it and say, no thanks, I'm not interested. Do you know why he doesn't say this? Instead, what he says is this, run from her house. Stay far away from it. Don't even go down the path. Why? Because Solomon knows that his son isn't strong enough. His Solomon knows his son isn't big enough to handle that kind of temptation when you're that close to it. You can't be that close to fire and not get burned. And so the goal is not to be bigger and stronger than the temptation. The goal is to stay so far away from it that the heat of the temptation can't touch you. And so, listen, do you have protections on all of your internet accounts, all of your devices, so that there's distance between you and the temptation? Are there boundary markers, parameters, guardrails in your life so that there's distance between you and the people in your life that would be dangerous if there weren't those protections? Do you have these things? Keep to a path far from her, Solomon says. Do you know what he's doing? 
He's giving his son guardrails. Guardrails. You know what guardrails are? Guardrails are to keep us within the stream, within the current of God's blessing and keep us away from the pain and the shame of brokenness. When I drive down the road, I have to tell you, when I look at those guardrails, when I look at all the signs, there might be something in me that says, you know what? How are they telling me how to drive? I'm fine. I know how to drive and I can do whatever I want to. But if I do that, you know what's going to happen? I'll end up getting a wreck, crashing the car and getting hurt. So at some point as a driver, I have to become great with guardrails because I learned that they're actually there for my protection. As long as I stay within the guardrails, then I can drive and enjoy the blessing of travel, right? But as soon as I break the guardrails, now I get hurt. That's why the end of the verse says, God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Do you know what the word judge means? You know what it means to judge? It means that you deem or decide or anoint something to be true. And so when you step outside of sexual guardrails, God is deeming, anointing, and deciding that there's pain on the other side. He's not a God that says, you screwed up, man. Now I'm mad at you. That's not his character. What he's saying is I put these guardrails in place for a reason. And if you stay within my stream of blessing, your marriage will be blessed. But if you step out, you'll experience pain and shame. Do you know why you and I need guardrails? Because there are these things called appetites. In the book of Genesis, there's a story of, story of two brothers. You remember Abraham, right? And a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Remember this? They're twins, kind of. The Bible says that Esau was born literally like one minute before Jacob was. And so that means that he's the oldest son. That's actually the source of all their tension as they grow up. Because even though they're twins, the only thing that really makes them similar is the way they look. But they're completely different altogether. Partly is their personality. I mean, the Bible says that Esau is a hunter, he's a gatherer, he's an outdoor guy. Jacob's a mama's boy. He likes to stay inside. He likes to cook. He likes to clean house. No, outside it's dangerous. There's bugs out there. So they don't even like each other. The other problem is this, in that culture, you and I don't understand this, but in that culture, when it comes to the inheritance of the father, the oldest son would always get twice as much as the other son. So Esau's set to inherit twice as much as Jacob is. It's called the birthright. So there's tension. The Bible says that one day Esau came in from a long hunt, probably didn't catch anything. Oh no, it's cold. There we go. He came in from a hunt and he didn't catch anything and so he was starving. The Bible says he goes up to Jacob who had just made a nice hot bowl of stew. Goes to Jacob and he said, Jacob, give me some of that. I'm hungry. Now Jacob's smart. He says, you know what? I could use this to my advantage. He says, you know what? I'll give you a bowl of this soup, this chili if you want. But first I need something from you. 
Esau says, what do you want? I'm so good. Listen to what the Bible says. Esau says, I'm about to die. He's that hungry. So Jacob says, all right, man, if you, it's really this important to you, give me your birthright. And so Esau says, what good is my birthright if I'm gonna be dead? And so he agrees to give Jacob his birthright, which is worth what, millions of dollars? For a bowl of stew. And so Jacob gives him this bowl of stew. And the Bible says that Esau ate when he was finished. He went away. And now Jacob has the birthright. Todd, I'm, I'm gonna, I want you to smell this. Isn't that good? Mmm. You guys smell this? Oh, isn't it good? Some of you are like, is it lunchtime yet? Mmm, just waffles. Can you, Nate, can you smell it back there? You can't? You can come up and eat some if you want. This is my special bowl of chili that I made personally from Meyer in cans called Hormel Chili. It's fantastic, isn't it? So he eats the bowl of stew, gives Jacob the birthright, and loses millions, millions. Of do- it's more than that. The oldest son had the authority to judge, to make decisions for the family once the father died. He gives up the authority, all the wealth, all the influence, all the platform, everything for a bowl of stew. And you're thinking, who in the right mind would ever, 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 ever do this? Andy Stanley in 2010, I went to a passion conference and he gave a talk on appetites. Here's what he said. Watch this. Couple things that are true of appetites. Number one, appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. And so it always tells you, you need more. And so he'd eat the bowl of stew and he, yeah, it might be good for a little bit, but then he's going to get hungry again. And then he's going to regret. Why did I ever give my birthright away for a stinking bowl of stew? appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. Do you know what else? They always say, now, not later. I can't wait. I'm about to die. If I don't eat this now, I'm going to die. Give me my appetite now. I've got to satisfy it now. I can't wait for dinner. I need a granola bar now. Do you see the problem? But here's something else that's true of appetites. God made them. Sin distorted them. Do I have an appetite for some good chili? Absolutely. Sin comes in, distorts it, and says, this is more important than other valuable things in your life. Appetites. So Andy Stanley says that if he could speak to Esau, he would say, listen, I'm from the future, and what I want to do is tell you what's going to happen. One day, because of the covenant God made with your grandfather Abraham, You will have descendants that are more numerous than the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. He's gonna make a great nation out of you. And so you're gonna have a family and then your kids are gonna have a family. And then one day God is gonna raise up a man by the name of Moses. And the way that God introduces himself to Moses, he's gonna say, I am the father. I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And then later on down the line, the Messiah is gonna show up. And when the Messiah shows up, he's gonna say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And Esau, you don't know this right now. You don't understand it right now. But not only will you be the father of a great nation, but God's salvation plan will come through you because it's your birthright. But you just 
gave it up for a bowl of chili. And now the Bible says, when God introduces himself to Moses, I am the the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your brother. And when Jesus shows up, he says, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You lost it all for a bowl of stew. Here's my question. What have you given up in your marriage for a bowl of stew? You and I have appetites, don't we? God made them. We have an appetite for intimacy, don't we? God gave that to us. Sin showed up and distorted it and said, no, no, you need more than what you have right now in your marriage and you need it now. And so appetites come, sin distorts them. And we have what's called, watch this, impact bias. Have you ever heard of this before? Impact bias means that there's something, a simple appetite, and it is magnified out of proportion to be more important and valuable than it really is. This is where you get buyer's remorse. You have a bad week or bad month, you say, you know what, I just need to pick me up. I see that new car and I love, that's gonna make me happy. So you go and buy it. For the first month, man, that was awesome, I love my car, but now you're not really happy about the $700 a month payment, are you? but now you're just used to the truck and you're stuck with it. Buyer's remorse, it's called impact bias. It means that this thing in a moment becomes so much more valuable than your marriage and you're willing to give up your marriage for this. Don't let it happen. Here's the problem. If you're anything like me, you've picked the bowl of stew over your marriage sometimes. Whatever the bowl of stew is. What do you do now? Instead of sitting in the pain or the shame, here's where the encouragement comes in. God is a God of redemption. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy, a God of forgiveness, a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, 10 chances. And so how do you do this? Talked with a good friend this week and he gave me some great advice. Here's what he said. Start with redemption. This is where repentance comes in. Have you asked your wife for forgiveness? Have you asked your husband for forgiveness? Have you apologized to your kids? He tells a story of when something happened with him. Everybody wanted to know the story. Everyone wanted to know what happened. It's the gossip train, isn't it? Until another pastor friend called him up and said, hey, let's just get together for lunch. When they sat down, the pastor asked him the question, have you asked your wife for forgiveness? Have you asked God for forgiveness? Have you apologized to your kids? When the answer was yes to every one of them, the pastor said, then we will never talk about this again. Because now that you have started with redemption, now guess what you can do? You can work towards reconciliation. How do you do that? You sit down with your spouse, the one that you have sinned against, and said, listen, I'm so sorry I did this. Thank you for forgiving me. Now, how do we work towards restoring our relationship? There's the reconciliation part. And then number three, celebrate the restoration. As much as you might remember the the mistake, as much as you might remember choosing the bowl of stew over your marriage, also remember the restoration on the other side and celebrate that all day long. Now, here's what I realize. Some of us might need some encouragement with this. And so as we sing the last song, I'm gonna pray for you Then I'm gonna encourage you to begin praying too. Maybe you've never asked for forgiveness and you need to do that today. Maybe you need to talk to your spouse this week, today after church and say, we need to work on this restoration. 
And then on the other side of this, watch this, because you've pushed through the pain and the shame, you will get to the healthy marriage on the other side. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a God of forgiveness and grace and mercy. Thank you for being a God that gives us opportunity after opportunity to be redeemed and restored and reconciled. So Father, I pray that you will give us the gift that we can only give to each other, not just our intimacy, but also our forgiveness. 